Welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV. We will do our best to answer them live and certainly after the show. It is my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the founder and CEO of Constellation Research. He's a best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to ZDNet, Harvard Business Review, and major pub publications. And in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at R-W-A-N-G-0. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Bala Ashar. He's the chief digital evangelist at Salesforce, but more importantly, one of the top CIO and CMO influencers in the world, all-around awesome guy, author himself, and more importantly, my co-host and co-founder of Disrupt TV Show. So who do we have today? We've got some really exciting topics. It is our distinct pleasure to have Professor Richard Devani. He's professor author of The Pan-Industrial Revolution, How the New Manufacturing Titans Will Transform the World. Professor Devani is the Bacala Professor of Strategy at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. From 2007 to present, Richard has been listed among the top 50 strategists and management thinkers in the world, according to Thinkers 50 ranking. Currently, Richard is ranked number nine among all management thinkers and one of the top, world's top five strategists, top five strategists in the world. He's the author of several influential books, including the global business, bestsellers, Hypercompetition, Beating the Commodity Trap, Strategic Capitalism, and Strategic Supremacy. He advises Fortune 500 companies and many of the world's top CEOs. He has won numerous awards, including the prestigious A.T. Kearney Award for his research and the 2018 Visionary Thought Leader of the Decade Award from the Women's Economic Forum for his work on developing strategy for international women's rights groups in newly developing and emerging economies. You can follow Professor Devani on Twitter at R-D-A-V-E-N-I. Welcome, Professor, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And thanks for such a nice intro. I have to Bala. reduce it because you've done so much. <laughs> Bala has the best intros in the industry. Um, professor, you know, I was a big fan of Strategic Supremacy. I thought it was a great book talking about growth, wealth, spheres of influence, and really thinking about capital flows, and also the hyper-competitive handbook. Those were wonderful books, um, really showed some depth and strategy as to uh, how to rethink models and rethink business models for this new world. And then you started talking about additive manufacturing and 3D printing um, and how this was going to change the future and more importantly, how it was underestimated. That was when you got my attention again. And I was trying to figure out why, what are those implications and why is 3D printing or additive manufacturing so different? Well, it turns a lot of things upside down. If you look at how we made things uh, during the last century, we kind of followed, uh, in most cases, the uh, Ford prescription. Uh, assembly lines, make parts simple, long supply chains, high capital intense equipment. And then comes along this technique 
that's been around actually for three uh, three thousand years because people actually used some additive methods uh, way back in ancient times. But finally, uh, <clears throat> we start to see a completely different uh, approach to making things. Here, you make complicated parts, not simple ones. You design your products so that there's less assembly, and the best products are ones that you don't assemble at all. It just prints the entire thing from bottom to top. Uh, and supply chains are relatively simple because you don't have to buy components from around the world. You simply make them while you're printing uh, the, the entire device at the, at the same time. Uh, so uh, all the tenants that we were taught as almost, almost as if they were science have kind of blown up. Uh, and the engineering world is, uh, you, uh, I don't know if you ever, do you remember the movie Mars Attacks? Yes. <laughs> you, you remember the little aliens and the heads blow up with purple, uh, with purple dust coming out of it? Well, yep. I, 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 uh, I see that happen to engineers all the time because they've spent 30 or 40 years in the science of engineering and designing. And then somebody says, well, all the principles you know are wrong. <laughs> So, uh, uh, and that's causing their heads to explode. Sure, sure. And in the last 10 years, certainly uh, the, the evolution and the accelerated innovation in terms of speed and size and convenience of 3D printing has been at an unprecedented rate. Companies like GE, Siemens, JBill, you've referenced these in your book, are you know, companies that are, that are, that are taking advantage of this incredibly disruptive technology. So what does this mean for global competition and will this impact every industry? Uh, <clears throat> well, let me start with the latter half. Uh, it won't impact every industry, but over the long term, it will affect many industries. Uh, right now, the field of additive manufacturing has taken over in certain places. Uh, aviation, for example. Uh, 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 prost prosthetics, uh, dental devices for straightening out your teeth, uh, hearing aid shells made to order for your ears, wow. um, and, and, um, uh, and implants, uh, medical implants like hips and, and so forth. Big uses in those markets. That in, in almost, in essence, those markets are, uh, you know, pretty far along to being uh, captured by additive methods. Just the hearing aid shell business, there, um, when the, from the time that the first adopter adopted additive manufacturing until 99.9% of the industry used additive manufacturing to make it, it was only 250 days. Wow. Everybody who didn't adapt essentially died. Wow. Um, and you had to get a, a head start because if you waited to play catch up, there was, you know, very, it was very difficult because you didn't have that much time. And especially if you have all, all, all these uh, 
uh, engineers running around with their heads blowing up with purple <laughs> dust. <laughs> the cleanup time on the on the on, on the purple dust is is longer than uh, than the amount of time you have to uh, to actually make something. So now uh, that was a, a long-winded answer to the second question, the second half of your question. The first half of your question was, how is it going to change um, uh, competition? It's going to change it on multiple levels. Uh, first, additive manufacturing allows you to make many different products. So what do, you, what do you call a company that one hour is making bicycle parts, the next hour it's making automobile parts, Amazing. the third hour it's making uh, uh, toy trucks, the next hour it's making um, uh, devices for the handicapped. Um, what do you call that? Um, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't have a name anymore. So I, so I gave it the name Pan Industrial, like, you know, like Pan Am. Um, and so competition is going to change because companies now can be really broadly diversified and use the same equipment and they can switch over between products relatively quickly um, without retooling. So that's the first major impact. It'll create man, uh, pan industrial uh, firms. Uh, now, the other big impact is going to be without this uh, long supply chains, ba basically you're going to buy powders and raw materials uh, and, uh, and, and manufacture from that. Manufacturing is going to localize lots of small plants, not very capital intensive. You know, the equipment's two or three million instead of 200 million. Um, and what this means is less trade across borders. Uh, that means trade wars won't be as powerful as they were before. It also means that uh, as the US and Europe make more products, we're going to end up um, not having to buy components from Asia. And the economies of those countries are at risk. Now, you might ask, what about in the US? Are, are we going to lose a lot of jobs um, because of this? And uh, uh, the answer is, yeah, we'll, we'll lose some jobs, um, uh, especially the more menial ones, as we automate tasks. Sure. Um, but we'll create better paying jobs, maybe not as many, for software engineers and designers and so forth, uh, and for new materials developers. Uh, so there's going to be a, a you know a, 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 some gains, some losses. Sure. But the good news is uh, the really good news is that in the U.S it's something like only 3% of people of, of the workforce that actually make stuff. You know, there's lots of people working for manufacturing firms, sure. but they're doing marketing and distribution. Sure. So in the end, we're already kind of insulated from this change. We made our switch to the service economy uh, years ago. Right. Whereas a country like China, where most of the people are working on, uh, uh, on assembly lines and other kind of manufacturing of the conventional sort, uh, China's going to have unrest. It's going to have uh, to pull back on its uh, international invent, uh, you know, interventionism and uh, uh, a lot of its ambitions to be the global leader 
will be undercut by uh, by being stretched too thin. So, so in the end, I think what this change means uh, from everything I can look, I can see from the from the way things are working in cutting edge firms uh, uh, is basically that uh, uh, the West will regain the leadership of the global economy. You know, what's interesting about this is not only the foreign policy uh, implications, but the capital flows uh, that actually uh, get changed and shifted around that. Today, a lot of uh, manufacturing, a lot of the growing economies actually got there because there was a shift in job skills um, and really a shift in really the layers of uh, development, right? You know, you'd see more advanced manufacturing shift uh, as time went on to different countries, and that got accelerated with with China. And so, the foreign policy implication here is that would we actually see more isolationism uh, because we don't need to do more trade, or would there really be a battle for raw materials? And and the battle is really trying to get raw materials into countries so that they don't have to be dependent on the component supply chain that we have today. Right. Yeah, that's a, a, a really interesting question because uh, some countries are resource rich, like the United yes. States. Uh, pretty Australia, much everything we Canada. have, uh, we can get from ourselves. So yes. that's going to put more money in circulation in circles in the United States. So, you know, we'll buy uh, the raw materials here. They'll hire workers. They'll buy more stuff. So, so for us, it's a positive. Um, it, it's a, a, a positive cycle. Um, <clears throat> it's also a positive cycle for the U.S. in the sense that uh, it changes the balance of power between nations. Right now, if you're a uh, emerging country, hmm. you sell your stuff to China, they make it, and then they sell it to uh, us rich folks in, in the U.S. and Europe. Um, and that, that kind of mercantilist system was exactly what made the British Empire uh, strong in the, um, the, uh, in, in the uh, 1900s, excuse me, in the 1800s, the 19th century. And uh, so, so that model uh, is very vulnerable here because now instead you're selling the the uh, the you know the emerging economies are selling raw materials uh, and very simple things to many many different countries and the United States will be one of the big ones and so the sphere of influence of the United States will be reestablished while that mercantilist system or neo mercantilist system will. Um, uh, be unraveled uh, because if you take out that center manufacturing piece, um, then there's no, uh, uh, there's they're not buying as much from the rest of the world, and that again should drive more people back towards Western thinking. And professor, what's actually interesting about that that is happening at the same time a confluence of forces with automation and AI declining populations in Western civilizations and the fact that we are getting to um, a, a probably end of labor arbitrage uh, that's going on. So this is pretty interesting implications. Yeah, I agree with everything you just said. Um, it's, I think the change that we're facing right now uh, is equivalent to the change in the last industrial revolution that took place from 
about the 1880s through 1920. And it's not gonna just affect how we make stuff. It's gonna affect things like back in those days, we watched urbanization take place, roads start to appear, commuters, suburbs develop, uh, 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 all kinds of new technology developments that we couldn't imagine uh, before. Uh, and lifestyles changed radically than, than they were back on the farm. Uh, so we're going to be looking at a kind of uh, uh, change similar to that, and it's going to be hard to predict what, what all of those societal changes will mean. It's amazing. I, I work for a networking technology company, so to think about uh, an enterprise switch router with 16, 20 layers of PCB and tens of thousands of discrete components, to change design or add a component is weeks and months of delay and to now be able to do it in almost real time is just incredible. So yeah. what advice professor do you have for entrepreneurs who can really position themselves and think about how they can grow businesses and add value in this additive manufacturing uh, future? Yeah. Um, well, there's a couple of things. Uh, the, the first thing uh, uh, really depends on what, the established big players alike. If they're slow moving dinosaurs, they're gonna give you some room to run. <laughs> On the other hand, if they're, um, uh, you know, if, if they're really on top of things like stampeding uh, elephant herds, uh, you're, you're gonna get crushed, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and, and so that's kind of the, the first piece. The second piece is, um, uh, 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 kind of uh, here is if you look at what the um, uh, uh, these nascent firms will do, uh, many of them will grow, uh, and during the time period that they're fly on the elephant's ass, they'll uh, the elephants won't respond, right? But yep. at some point, you become like a nine hundred pound fly. And the elephant says, geez, this is a pain in the, in the butt. And it sits down on you. Um, and that's the last response you want to get. So you have to have a second act to be able to go beyond the, uh, the first uh, stage where you get big enough to now start getting noticed. Sure. Um, or you have to plan to exit. Uh, I, I believe that uh, based on... Uh, uh, rethinking a lot of the assumptions of 3D printing. Uh, people said there were no economies of scale, but that was when the machines were $3,000 and you printed 16 of them. Um, wow. So it wasn't, it, 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 that, that assumption doesn't apply when you get to a, a machine that costs $3 million and it makes uh, uh, millions of uh, parts uh, per year. So. Uh, I, I, and, and then the economies of scope for being in multiple businesses uh, will give the big companies an advantage. And so I believe that there'll be these giant um, pan-industrial uh, titans that will uh, essentially be able to compete with the big info giants uh, from California. Oh, wow. um, 
uh, uh, for for control over uh, over markets, and they and they won't win like Mike, like Microsoft did using software over the PC marketplace with IBM. IBM, wow. you know, this really. Is, well, Professor, this is fascinating. We are yeah. talking about some geopolitical uh, implications. We're talking about manufacturing supply chain implications. We're talking about changes to the uh, average worker and really what it's going to mean for a run on. Uh, raw materials. Uh, we are here with Richard Devani, professor and author, The Pan Industrial Revolution, How New Manufacturing Will Transform, and New Manufacturing Titans Will Transform the World. You can follow him on Twitter at R-D-A-V-E-N-I, catch his books, a number of bestseller strategy books, and of course, one of the top thinkers in the world. Thank you for being on the show, Richard. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, uh, and I wish uh, both of you great luck. Uh, it sounds like you got a really great uh, show going here. Thank you, sir. We could have talked to you for hours. Thank you so much. Probably should. Well, <laughs> thank you. Well, I, I'd be glad to do it, but you know, it's a disease professors get. Uh, <laughs> I'll be you know, we can talk I'll forever. Be awesome. Thank you, sir. You were terrific. Wow, well, Vala, that is deep. Well, I don't. Great, about I don't think. I don't think business leaders truly understand the impact of additive manufacturing in 3D. Uh, it's a fascinating topic, and I and I do believe every time I learn more about it, uh, I'm I'm in awe of the potential changes that, and I believe it's going to be most industries, not just some industries, but um, uh, it's it's our privilege now to shift the discussion to digital marketing, and we have uh, it's a pleasure for us to have Celia Fleischaker, uh, Chief Marketing Officer at Pros. Celia joined Pros in 2017 and serves as their CMO. She's responsible for developing and executing strategies that build on Pro's success as a leading provider of commerce solutions and driving in the industry that it serves. Celia has more than 20 years of enterprise software marketing experience, so she must have started when she was 10. And uh, she most recently served as a chief marketing officer and executive vice president at Epicor Software, and we'll learn more about that. She's a great follow on Twitter at C-F-L-E-I-S-C-H-A- K-E-R. Welcome, Celia, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. <laughs> um, thank you very much for that <laughs> intro. <laughs> well, hey, hey, thanks for being on the show. We just, talked, we just talked about crazy new business models that are happening. That was now the question is, how do we price that and use AI to make it work? Right? You got this brand <laughs> we new We can help you with talking. that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We, definitely. The industry will need a lot of marketing talent, for sure. For sure. And we're definitely going to need all this cool stuff on pricing that you have out here too, as well as well a recent study. So, hey, let's talk about your recent study, right? You have this recent study. Share some background on what's going on here on this research. You know, why you guys do it? Who is the audience? Why are people excited about this? It touched on one of our favorite topics, AI. So, yeah, absolutely. So we just completed a study about our market. So we wanted to learn more about what our customers and prospects were facing when it comes to digital transformation, when it comes to AI, e-commerce. And so we went out, we interviewed uh, over 700 B2B decision makers globally. So in the US, in Europe, and Australia, and we asked them exactly that. What are they doing for digital transformation? What kind of challenges are they facing? What are they seeing happen with e-commerce from a B2B perspective? And then how is AI playing a role in all of that? And what were some of the key findings? Um, um, 700 is a nice, rich data set. Yeah, we wanted to make sure we got a really rich data set because we were going across industries. We play in several different industries. And, and you know, the umbrella topic was around digital transformation. And we, 
we ask them like, have you started? And <laughs> what's going on? And so over half have a project underway, which was great to hear. And then you've got 40, 45% or more that have one planned either starting within the next 12 months or even within the next 24 months. You have this one lonely 1% that has no plans. <laughs> so we're not sure what's going on with that group, but we were pleased to see that people were actually taking it underway. And then the common thread was most people were doing because of buyer experience, trying to improve the buyer experience. And then from a coordinated experience, because what we're seeing is more and more B2B companies operating across the direct channel, but also e-com and through partners. And so how are they going to coordinate that experience? Because it becomes exponentially complex as they try to do that. And do you have a sense that, they, uh, that the respondents have a, a common definition of what is digital transformation? I think a kind of a macro sense, yes. But what we saw was there was no one way they were defining it. So when we asked them, you know, some were starting in, in different areas of their business, it seemed like, they might be working from an IT perspective or they might be working from a cultural or customer experience perspective. So I don't, I don't, I think yes, at a common level, but then company by company or industry by industry, we did see differences about how they were choosing to approach it yeah. and what their priorities were. We interviewed Aaron Levy and uh, I, I like what he said. He said, digital transformation is not just adding software to a broken existing process. It's reimagining re and reinventing processes. So, you know, it's, it's it, as you said, my own experience is that the definition of transformation varies quite a bit. So, so, but it's- Yeah, it's, and I think it's what you said that makes it so tough is when you start changing the process, that's where the cultural resistance comes yeah. in. And if you were just implementing the technology with current processes, it'd, make it, it'd be much easier. Right. But it's that process change, which is where the real value is driven that causes it to be a more difficult proposition. Right, right. You know, and, and the piece that's really interesting is really the activation piece in the study, right? You, you mentioned that there's a gap between, hey, we started this thing, and then, yeah. oh yeah, what about activation? Let's talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, there is a little bit of a gap. So we found a group of people that had planned and started and were underway, and then we asked the questions about, okay, well, have you invested? Have you put dollars behind this project? Have you implemented what you've invested and there were definitely different groups and so we found that yeah everyone started planning but when it came down to putting their money behind it and then mm -hmm. actually implementing and getting live with these processes and these, this technology not everyone was at the same place and, and one of the things that we find and we, we find this when talking with our customers too is it's really important to clearly define what you mean Bala you said it by digital transformation Kind of scope out that project and then get some quick wins because there's a lot of great technology that you can go in and a lot of people obviously that we work with start in that selling area scope a project get a quick win show a lot of value have a proof point and then that you can move to bigger projects uh, one of the obvious emerging technologies that's on top of line of most people that i have an opportunity to engage with is is ai and and the ones that are em embarked on current projects, not just radar, but they're actually thinking and using technologies like machine learning, NLP, and, 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 and such. Um, they're thinking about data maturity. They wanna go from descriptive to diagnostic to predictive, and ultimately prescribing, prescriptive use of analytics. So using advanced analytics to augment intelligence in sales, marketing, service, or any customer touch point or line of business. 
what do you see in, in, and what would some of the uh, survey findings in terms of specific AI usage for transformation purpose? Yeah, so we did. We, you know, we've been in the AI game for a while, and so we wanted to ask about how people felt about that, where they were using it. And then what we found is almost half of the respondents says we think they said we think our company should invest more, which I thought was it. So people are big believers that it can make a difference. And then the common thread about why they were investing more is because they thought it could really help create a connected customer experience, which I thought was pretty mature for this group. And where they were using it, you know, they, they said first and foremost, where we're investing is on IT, which is not surprising, but right behind that was sales, and then right behind that was marketing, because we think there are so many great use cases. Um, you think about, you mentioned data, and it's so important. Data plays such a role, and, and there's such an explosion of data, especially for marketing and for sales. All the points we're collecting, all the things that can go into, um, how you price, how you quote, how you're talking with your customers. Um, and that's where people are looking for AI to really help. Absolutely. No, it's a great point. And, and when we think about this, right, you know, there are a couple of things like, well, what are three biggest things that you think leaders, uh, business leaders should learn from these survey findings? Uh, where, where should they start? Yeah, I mean, the, the common threads that kind of I would have pulled out is one is the pace of change. When we talk to them about any of those three areas, e-com, AI, digital transformation, it's, it's going by really quickly. It's not a wait and see game that you need to get in there and, and, and start working toward that outcome that you want. So pace of change is definitely one. Um, I think the other one was um, there's no one way to approach it. I think depending on the market you're in, your competitive situation, the customers you serve, Oh, you just destroyed a whole consulting industry. Oh, you know, templates and models. And, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but, but it's right. I mean, people are still finding the right path um, right now. Yeah, exactly. You got to find that. And then the common thread, too, is, you know, really understanding what's going to drive the project. And what we saw was, regardless of these technologies, people were looking at how it was going to impact their customer experience. So how do I create a stronger, better customer experience? through the use of all these, all the time I'm putting in, that's the outcome they were looking for. Uh, a customer recently asked me about my point of view on voice driving uh, commerce for this holiday, upcoming holiday season. And um, we had some research at, at my company that, that, for example, we're predicting that half of the orders uh, in the upcoming holiday season will be on a smartphone. Um, which is more than all of the orders three years ago across any device, uh, including desktops. So, but I couldn't, um, you know, identify content from our research to answer that. I saw Capgemini mentioned that last year, I think over $2 billion of transactions done through voice enabled technology. Amazon Echo is in one in five homes in the U.S., Google Home, uh, even Siri and other technologies. So do you have a sense, did the report talk about the the adoption of voice as a UI driving commerce, and maybe in B2B, it's gonna be a laggard compared to you know, buying sneakers or something online. But do you have a sense of adoption in, in, in terms of ordering business to business using voice-enabled technology? Yeah, we did not specifically ask about the voice front. So I can't comment from a survey perspective. I agree with you. I think it's a little further out on the B2B front than certainly on the B2C side, but I mean, I, I think it will play a role, absolutely. Yeah, I, 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 I get a sense as well. What advice do you have? I mean, you're, you're, not, you know, you're a leading edge CMO, you're at the heart of transformation, advising, implementing, guiding 
companies, um, what advice do you have to CMOs in terms of, you know, being an effective uh, business leaders, driving strategy for companies in this fourth industrial revolution as the World Economic Forum calls where we are today? Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the learnings that we had. I mean, jump in, right? Like there's so much happening. There's the pace of change is so rapid getting in there. And I think the close partnership with sales is really key because we're seeing more and more the, the data that you're driving from a marketing perspective, what's going on in the sales side, those, those functions have to work so closely together. And so driving that tight alignment, that tight partnership with the sale, selling side and the sales motion is really important. Sage advice, absolutely, absolutely. I think the partnership with sales is, that, that, that is critical. That is, that is, you have to view sales as your customer uh, in order to uh, effectively market, absolutely. Definitely. Well, well yeah, and we also see that, that the gap between sales, marketing, and e-commerce, uh, and commerce in general, and even service is, is happening as well, as people actually rethink uh, the end-to-end life cycle. Um, one of the things that in the study was, was interesting, too, was the fact that uh, people see e-commerce um, as something that's advantageous, not a threat. Can you go deeper into that? Yeah, I mean, e-commerce was one of those areas when we think about rapid change, it's it's right there. So we asked companies, how much of your business, these are B2B, large organizations, over 250 million, how much of your business is e-com today, Trevin? And about 20% said over half of their business is coming through e-com, which I thought was, wow. you know, that actually surprised me. But the question then we followed up with is, okay, well, five years down the road, where do you think you are? And at that point, over 60% said a majority of their revenues they felt would be e-commerce, which is a huge, if you think about huge. the change and complexity that that adds to a B2B business, um, it's, it's big. And so- Chaos, the fax machine goes away. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's gone. Yeah, definitely gone. But um, yeah. No, no, it's it, still there. It's still there. Trust me. There's a lot of OCR work going on in the back end. It's kind of scary. <laughs> So. That's so funny. Um, but yeah, there's so much growth that's expected there. And I think a lot of the questions we get, they don't see it as a threat. They definitely see it as an advantage, but it's more along the lines of this additional channel, what that does, the complexity of the experience in terms of, I don't think it's going to replace my B2B uh, direct sales rep. How do they work together to, to serve the customer? Yeah, in the survey, more than half thought potential to reach more customers is one of the top benefits, which, yeah. which makes sense. Um, similar uh, uh, percentage said that satisfying customers' expectations for self-service buying at around 49% and reduction in overhead of cost at 46%. So it's about optimization. It's about mass personalization at scale. It's about being responsive all the time, creating a frictionless uh, moments of truth engagement. Um, Ray talks about ambient orchestration, which I think e-commerce plays a key role in that. But so having said, uh, having said all of that, I believe if I was a CEO, I would want my marketing organization to be not a cost center, but a P&L. And I would want them to own the e-commerce function and actually be responsible for the revenue with a low, t- low sales touch, highly digitized, uh, framework. Do you think e-commerce is the is the tool that CMOs need to actually own a piece of the revenue, not just multi-touch attribution and all of the great, you know? Hey, now don't knock. <laughs> I mean, I love all of that. I was a former CMO, so you know, I I yeah. get how important it is. But I mean, literally owning the number. <laughs> yeah, no, I love the idea of owning the number, and I think 
you just got to do that in concert with the sales team because the concern there is you don't want to set up a competing channel, but you want a channel that works together and supports each other. And so um, I would want to make sure that, you know, however you drive that, if marketing owns and drives that, you, you don't want to take a piece of the business away from the rep, but you want them to look at that's a channel I want to work with to drive the business forward. That's a great point. That's a great point. In my company, when I was thinking about e-commerce and B2B, I was looking at certain price points. So mm -hmm. any skew under $1,000, why am I going to have my account executive burn calories when they could be yep. selling a $200,000 uh, SKU? So it was, uh, it was, I was approaching it from a SKU-based and, and low complexity, high complexity, but it was critically important that you're not viewed as someone who's going to take a piece of a pie. Absolutely. Uh, because that's, that's critical to uh, that harmony you said at the beginning with sales and marketing. I agree. Totally agree. agree. Wonderful. Hey, so let's talk a little bit more about the CMO role. You're like a master CMO. Uh, you've been <laughs> at different types of industries, different types of organizations. Like what's changed? Right. Uh, I mean, Bala was a CMO before he's, he's watching that change happen with all his clients. Right. But, but there's something different about CMO, especially in the B2B world. And there's a big shift that's actually going on. So, so how do you get in the role and what's changing? Yeah, it's, I think two different, how you get in the role is a ton of great support. Like I, whether it's on the family front, absolutely. Um, I've been incredibly lucky on that side, but then also on, I look at the teams that I've worked with and I wouldn't be in this role without working with awesome people on my team and the talent you surround yourself with. So how you get there is, is one thing. And then I think what's changed is I, I look at my tech stack, right? <laughs> and it's just, it's crazy, but it's, it's definitely something that gives you that edge. And I think the we talk about the pace of change in business. I think the pace of change in marketing and how you got to go, you know, it's funny how it mimics business and that mass personalization and that one-to-one. -one. And yeah, I'm going after an audience of thousands and thousands of people, but how do I talk to them individually is, is a lot of where that changes. Absolutely. Absolutely. The art and science is definitely, uh, yeah, um, <laughs> it's not one or the other. And, and, and you're a, great storyteller and, uh, and, and all of that stories have to be, you know, supported by a modern tech stack because the customer behavior and expectations mm -hmm. are like this. Uh, they want you to know them really well. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Absolutely. So it's no better time in my opinion to be a CMO. You're, you're perfectly suited for the next assignment as CEO. So, so keep up the good job. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. awesome. We are here talking to Celia Fleischek, our Chief Marketing Officer at Pros. You can follow her at C-F-L-E-I-S-C-H-A-K-E-R. More importantly, we're talking about this latest study on digital transformation, AI and commerce. You can check it out on the Pros website. Uh, thanks a lot for being on the show. Happy Friday. Thanks. thanks Have a good weekend. Thank you very much. Awesome. All right. So we've got deep AI studies. We've got additive manufacturing. What do we have next? Well, uh, we have uh, someone who can wrap a nice bow around all of these discussions. Uh, we have, <laughs> that's right. I'm assuming John and I have what I call the Red Sox cold because I haven't slept in three weeks. But, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, we have, it's our pleasure for us to have John Reed, co-founder of Diginomica, uh, which examines the digital enterprise from the vantage point of real world use cases. 
John uh, is an advocate for media overmarketing, uh, and he sees Digitomica as a chance to disrupt tech media with a, a BS wary enterprise reader in mind. Although he regularly contributes to Disrupt TV, John tries not to use the word disruption excessively. <laughs> so we're happy that he's here. He's definitely a first ballot Hall of Fame Disrupt TV inductee. You can follow John on Twitter, a must follow uh, John on Twitter at J-O-N-E-R-P. Welcome back, John, to Disrupt TV. Well, <clears throat> are you ready for some ambient orchestration, guys? Infinite ambient orchestration. Infinite. I forgot the infinite. Oh, I yeah, forgot yeah, the we infinite. Need, we need some infinite ambient orchestration oh, today. Everybody needs long, infinite. It's been a long, it's been a long week. Uh, it had, were you yeah. at the parade? Were you at the Red Sox parade or not? I, I was not. Uh, I caught some of that on TV. I did. Uh, but but yeah, that was sleep deprivation time. Um, but but that's basically the fall season in a nutshell, right? Uh, we were all on a lot of airplanes, and we were trying to figure stuff out. And then I realized we should have just sat and listened to the people you had on TV today, and we could have just learned without going anywhere. But whatever. <laughs> I, I certainly, uh, uh, you know, Professor uh, Richard definitely. Uh, that that's an area I need to research more because I think it will have profound implications. Um, and I visited Jabil, and I've been to Siemens. And uh, I think these are companies that are going to really take advantage of this potential emerging tech. But what's on your mind, John? What's, what's new? Dude, what's going on with this IBM Red Hat acquisition? Let's start, <laughs> let's start with the biggie. One of the biggest software acquisitions in the world. Yeah, I, I knew we, you'd want to talk about this. And, and I hope your viewers aren't just overflogged by this story, right? Um, so what I did is I, I tried to save everyone the suffering. And I read a whole ton of articles um, and <laughs> one one thing I think it really comes down to is that relevance is expensive <laughs> and 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 you know there there are two ways to become relevant one is the bootstrapping earn it way um, and the other is to buy relevance and relevance doesn't come cheap and that's why you paid 34 billion dollars for Red Hat because now you can see, the thing is these acquisitions are all about execution so it's impossible for the three of us now to say oh this was really great or this was really dumb because we have to wait and see but but what we know is that IBM is relevant in a way that they weren't a week ago and and as far as the price tag the people are kind of complaining about I seriously doubt anyone's going to say in five years oh if they'd only bought Red Hat for 15 billion dollars everything would have worked out great you know, I mean, the fact of the matter is whatever they paid for it, now they have to do something with it. Um, I think one of the really interesting subtexts to this acquisition uh, is you have to sort of interpret this, in my opinion, as a little bit of a setback for AI. Because this was all about Watson and, and AI saving IBM, and it did not. Now, you can go ahead and say, well, you know, IBM didn't do AI the right way with Watson. Um, and I actually happen to think that Watson is going to be a success for them as going forward. They're doing a lot of smart things with Watson in an API framework and stuff. So I don't think that story's done yet. But it just it just goes to show you that while AI is having tremendous impact, that's not the same as saying that it's making organizations billions and billions of dollars without even trying. So I just think we have to be a little bit careful to understand that there's a big difference between cultural impact of technology and actually making money off technology. And clearly Watson wasn't doing it, right? Because if Watson was, 
you don't spend $34 billion of Red Hat. So I think that's one of the really interesting subtexts to this story. Sure, sure. It also, I think, maybe exemplifies your model of media over marketing. Uh, yeah. you know, certainly the Jeopardy moment was incredible and launched a whole, you know, media marketing campaign about, you know, Watson doing all sorts of things. But I think that's been tempered a bit. And now there are use cases and there are, there's lots of activity where you're seeing some organizations be faster and more, more data driven because of AI technologies. Now you oh, mentioned the travel season and the fall, fall events. I know, I, you know, when Ray's on, I can't really talk about travel because when I say I've been on the road every week since September, Ray yeah. like yawns. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but, but tell us about all, you know, all of the, you know, the highs and lows and, and all the event fall season for you. Yeah. So, so basically every week in hits and misses, I kind of write about the enterprise from a, what's, what was great and what wasn't. So I thought I would do that for you guys, but do it for the entire event season. Um, so, so the highs are just really just a few things that I think really stood out for me. Um, one is, is that the, the best of, is sort of the revenge of the best of breed stack. So, yeah. so what we're seeing more and more, and, and, and the reason this is so important is that vendors in the enterprise want you to buy all their stuff, right? They don't want you to buy just one thing. They want you to buy the whole suite. Well, if, if you have a weak link in that suite, you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable to shadow IT or whatever you want to call that. You're vulnerable to a millennial downloading an app they like better. Yeah, sure. And that's putting a lot of pressure into this sort of best of breed scenario. Now, when we go back in time, we say, well, why did best of breed was hot like 15 years ago? Yeah, but CIOs drove themselves nuts trying to integrate all that crap. So, so the new best of breed is about vendors stepping up to not only have the best product in their area, but much better integration. And, and cloud protocols and APIs are part of that. Like if you're, if you're a closed product and you don't have APIs, bye-bye. Yeah. Um, but but so, so just to give you one concrete example of that, like I was at the Zoom show recently and the Zoom user conference and um, they, they've really won in their best of breed area. For example, we're on Zoom right now. Of course, we're actually paying for things that are supposed to be yeah. free. Right, <laughs> and you're paying for it because you put a, such a premium on the experience of, of a proper user experience that you will pay for something versus, so for example, Google has some free tools. Zoom's not worried about that. Um, but what, what Zoom has to do is Zoom has to integrate with other stuff. So for example, Slack, Workplace by Facebook. Workplace by Facebook had an event the same week. Who was there? Zoom CEO. Because he's not trying to solve everything because he realizes he can't do that better than they can. Right. So he, he's focusing on what he can do. Um, this is a really, really big change. Uh, I'll bring you back to a cloud ERP show earlier this year with Acumatica. They have a CRM product. What did they do? They featured Salesforce integration, even though they have their own CRM. Why do they do that? Because they know their users, many of them, insist upon using what they consider to be best of breed. So this is where a lot of vendors are going to either succeed or fall down. And it's a really big change, in my opinion. Great insight. Great insight. So, so that's one that's one big high from from the week. Uh, another one is that you know, and and I have I have been trashing AI, and I'll explain a little bit about what my concerns about AI in a sec. But the one thing that we're seeing again and again is that automation and strategic role shifts are having impact. So in other words, part of the promise of of automation and which we kind of put under the AI umbrella is the notion that we're going to become more strategic in our work. 
And we're starting to see that across many different job functions and industries. So for example, at the Tableau show I was just at, it's all about the shift in data analysts from moving away from administrative, administrative stuff and data prep into the real hardcore analysis and also delivering that capability to business users. So your role changes from like a, a quant geek to someone who's really spreading the data gospel. Right. We're seeing companies do that. I did a case study with Nationwide. That's exactly what they're doing and it's working. Um, that is Sage and Tech Advantage, the focus on CFOs. Uh, a CFO at JobBite saying that she's been able to shift from about uh, you know, 80% administrative bookkeeping kind of stuff to, to she, she sees herself being 80% strategic within a couple of years. Wow. So again, it's a strategic shift and a lot of it has to do with automating uh, a lot of sort of bulk administrative functions. And so I think if you wanna take an optimistic look at our industry, that's the optimistic part. I think where the tricky part comes in is once we get strategic, that doesn't necessarily mean we're always gonna do the right thing. Uh, you know, you talked about this notion of, 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 of predictive and prescriptive data and stuff like that. Um, so the question becomes like, like, what do we do with that time? Now that we're being more strategic, how are we making better decisions? And that's kind of what I'll be looking for in 2019 is how are companies taking that data as an asset and really doubling down in a way that is saving them money. Um, one thing I do want to point out is that um, I was a judge on the, the Supernova Awards in the data decisions category. Sure. And, and you guys compiled from your submissions a number of use cases of companies that are making progress on this. Um, and they are, they are showing quantifiable results, which is really, really encouraging. I think the one catch, and this is where things get more complicated, is that for the most part, this isn't about an entire transformation of an enterprise. This is about um, picking a project or picking uh, a customer base or a demographic or picking something and excelling in that. Um, what we're waiting to see is, is a company put all the pieces together and there's not that many companies that have figured that out. So, um, but, but we're seeing some encouraging signs. John, when you read Walmart uh, took the smart robots to do inventory analysis and then they freed up 35,000 employees and, and they trained them to be personal shoppers, whereby today Walmart can reach 40% of households in the US, a capability they didn't have two years ago and they didn't have to hire additional army of personal shoppers. They just redirected and retrained existing staff because the mundane work is now done. The repetitive work is now done with a smart robot in their shops. Is that, in your view, a definition of transformation where it's new business model innovation, new ways of getting incremental revenue, not just modernizing existing legacy processes? Oh, absolutely it is. And, and, and it, it kind of fits in. When I said strategic, that was kind of an umbrella because a lot of the strategic stuff is moving people into more customer facing capacities. It's basically things that are having impact to your bottom line. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, but, but, but you can go back to Walmart and just, and just acknowledge that, that whatever transformation they have underway is still incomplete. I mean, I was at my Walmart the other night and the employees walked past me with total indifference. I mean, they weren't engaged in, in any way with, with the customers in the store. So, you know, and obviously that's like a small sample size. It's just me sure. and my local store. But the point is like, how do you know it wasn't like, you, man? No, it's kidding. It, it could have been me. It, it could have been me, but uh, it was mass personalization. He had a Red Sox hat and he was in Walmart, yeah. Connecticut. Yeah. And like, yeah. Yeah. So, but, but yeah, to your point, those are exactly the kinds of, of yeah. things we're seeing. Um, the problem that we're running into is that, 
and, and you'll see this as, as a frequent traveler is that it's not a seamless omni-channel experience yet. It's not. Like you have a good experience maybe with hotel check-in, but maybe when you get to your room, you have a bad experience. Right. Um, you have a good experience with one airline, but you have to switch to another, you have a bad one. Um, so, so, so like we're, we're not really, we haven't really conquered the whole thing, but there are signs that this notion that data is an asset that we can use to improve the customer experience. We are seeing signs that that is actually happening. So that's, that's pretty cool. Um, the, the other things I'll just run through very, very quickly on the sort of high points. Um, it, we have to pay a lot of attention to vertical and geographical, which I think you guys did a great job of in your first interview, kind of noting that, that these trends are, are very vertically driven and very geographically driven and vendors have to pay attention to that too and not present these one size fits all solutions. Platforms and community continue to change about how we think about software. It's, it's just not about building the best toy anymore, right? Um, the most recent example is Tableau because I just got back from their show. Um, last year, they released an extension framework. You know, now they have, they have like 35,000 people that downloaded that. They're all building apps. That's a much more defensible position for that company than before. Um, without community, without a platform, I don't think you have a defensible position. And, and the final thing is I think we're, we're seeing just a lot more engagement around solving real world social problems, which I think is a really mm -hmm. inspiring trend. Um, and, and we've heard a lot, I mean, we, we trash the millennials sometimes, but one thing we see from millennials is they're putting a lot of pressure on workplaces to be more purposeful, um, to, to, to be less about burnout, um, which I, we're all pretty, we've, we've all talked, I don't know, we were having a back channel conversation today about burnout. And burnout, man. I work, I, I, I work no, no. normal hours. No, you're all good. But, Ray, but you're a poster child of what not to do. <laughs> but, but you're all Come good. But there's a lot of, sleep three hours a night and travel. The son, of immigrants. Yeah. the son of immigrants model, right? Yeah, life, life work balance. You're perfect, man. That's you're right. perfect. I don't know. I'm preaching to the choir here. I'll just move on. All right. Should we get to Next. my should we get to my to my road burns, my the things that I that I don't want? Yes. Road burns road and, burn. and it's November, so some predictions too. Some predictions. Oh, oh, we'll get to predictions in just one sec too. Sure. Um, all right. So road burns. Um, fill in the blank. Your customer panel is awesome. No. Interactive. No. Powerful. No. It's boring and over moderated. Um, people have got to realize that your customers carry your message. Quit over moderating these panels and putting us to sleep. Um, Zoom, Zoom was one company recently that got it right where they basically just put the media in front of customers and then they left the stage and let us figure out how to interact with them. It's like, wow, it's actually weird. Was like was really? that thoughtful or was that by accident? <laughs> uh, maybe they just forgot we were there. Um, I don't know. Um, all I know is that it worked. Uh, so you got You got to fix your customer panels. Um, also, blockchain is single single handedly keeping the enterprise PR industry alive. Um, uh, I just want to share with you, like I, I I keep hitting on like let's see some more live production use cases. I want to read your recent PR pitch. New York State is considering legislation that will create a committee devoted to studying blockchain with the intent to eventually use the tech for managing documents. When I talk about blockchain being the POC phase, that's what I mean. That was a real pitch. They're creating a committee. Wow, I'm going to write an article about that. John, when are you going to change your Twitter handle to J-O-N blockchain? It, it's coming, man. It's coming. I might have to... Although I'm, 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 I think it changed it to something else. I'll tell you what that is in just a minute. Okay. Um, I did another one the other day. Blockchain could obliterate brand affinity. Um, so pass the pipe, folks. Um, 
but but it, it's all about learning how to it's all about it's all about learning how to read critically like so for example yeah. like one of the things with blockchain that people need to be aware of is that is that it really excels in times where you need public transparency on an issue so so for example the ibm walmart uh, uh, food uh, contamination transparency blockchain pilot is a very interesting one to watch for that reason. So there are going to be use cases. We just have to, we got, we got to keep this stuff at arm's length. We're going to, what it comes down to is we're going to need another buzzword next year because blockchain is worn out. And I, I've heard right, buzzwords. Right. We got to go back to the drawing board. So. Ray and I were going to rename the show Disrupt Blockchain. So we're going to have to, uh, yeah. you're, so, John, you're making us think. <laughs> We'll, we'll change it to Coinbase TV or something like that. Oh, I don't like already have that. Listen, oh, wait, that's seven have billion that. evaluation. That's not a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> they already have that, I think. Uh, so. You want to move on to predictions? Yes, please. Predictions. Let's do predictions. Oh man, are you going to write about this as well, or have you already written it? Uh, no, I, I'll, I'll, I'll jot some of this up if okay. you want, but I haven't written. This is this is for your audience alone at this point. Awesome. Breaking um, news. As you know, I'm not a fan of the predictions game. Um, uh, I predicted every one of my predictions will be wrong. Um, but <laughs> What's the accuracy rate when you look back? <laughs> yeah. Uh, someone will put something on the blockchain that they shouldn't. Um, it, we, we, I think we have sex workers on the blockchain. So I was thinking, Ray, about industry analysts on the blockchain uh, to verify claims and disclosures. Uh, but, but anyhow, um, as far as buzzwords are concerned, I, I expect a heavy dose of quantum computing next year. Um, I still don't think anyone will understand what it means, but I think we're going to hear a lot about it because you, you got to have something. Quantum computing is the abstract art of computing. <laughs> right. Uh, but, you know, but actually, Ray, think, Ray you had a, a scholar from Microsoft uh, who, who talked about quantum computing in your events. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to... Uh, no, we, we are in the early days. Holger was moderating a panel um, on blockchain for us. And, uh, and and no on quantum for us and you know uh, it was kind of interesting right because we're thinking about what the implications of quantum and blockchain were while we're sitting there listening to this we're like how's that gonna work right there you go quantum buzzwords together in one but it was actually turned out to be a wonderful conversation it was Matthias Troyer from Microsoft one of the principal researchers and Nima Alados from the Rigetti Computing one of the biggest upstarts uh, in uh, quantum. And so it was a deep discussion. We'll have the videos available for everyone from the uh, Constellation Connected Enterprise site uh, later in the next few weeks as we're processing those videos right now and making sure they get produced right. But uh, yeah, it was an in-depth discussion about where we are today. I mean, the bottom line was, hey, we're building this stuff. Yeah. We're not sure where it's going to work differently. Uh, but we're gonna one, of the key, one of the key findings yeah. is that the research led to optimizing performance on classical traditional computers, which, which, yes. which was one of the ancillary benefits but anyway i agree with you i think that's going to be talked about for sure next year i think the other thing we're going to hear a lot about especially the second half of next year is 5g um yeah. you know and and the significance of 5g and of course they're going to try to sell us a bunch of 5g devices that don't actually work uh because there isn't a 5g network yet so be be careful about that uh but 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 for those who haven't been following it too closely i think the key to 5g is it's when you talk about smart devices and smart cars and smart basically anything, 5G is gonna is gonna really rapidly uh, accelerate all of that stuff. So I think we're gonna hear a lot about 5G, but probably not until the second half. And you stole my thunder. I think we're gonna hear a lot about prescriptive next year. Uh, we're gonna hear a lot about how can machines actually provide us with guidance around decisions that we should be making. Uh, so so we'll hear a lot about that. And I've seen some interesting examples of that. Um, 
And, you know, it makes sense, right? Um, I saw an interesting automated insights demo uh, with Tableau where they take every visualization in your system and provide a series of analysis points and prediction points on what you should do with that data. And I think we need that type of, of framework going forward uh, because that's the problem is that data is proliferated to such an extent that we need we, we need some guidance around that. We might not automate the decisions, but we certainly want the prescriptive ideas. So, um, and this one is just, just really more I'm hoping. I don't think this is right, but I, I, I just want Facebook to get a real challenge. Um, I, I'd like to see it just a whole, <laughs> I, I'd like to see something come up that really steals Facebook's thunder. And uh, I haven't seen it yet, but I mean, I know the, some of the younger people are, are shifting the scales a little bit. The problem is that Instagram's owned by Facebook. So that doesn't help very much. So we're leaving Facebook. We're going to Instagram. Yeah. 1.5 billion active daily users. My friend That's Mark Finner. the like, size of humanity a hundred years ago. My uh, friend Mark Finner and he's like, go hyper local with next door. So I ran my next door ward. There's like 10 people in it. No. Oh, we're having a massive battle on next door right now. Like there's like Yimbies versus like citizens versus it's like total chaos, right? Like you got all these people like politically manipulating like the citizens. It's, it's weird. Next door is getting crazy, but uh, we'll see what Sarah Fryer does to clean that thing up. All right. Well, hey, this is awesome. We are with John Reed, co-founder of Diginomica, all around awesome pundit. And of course, our cleanup hitter. You can follow him at John ERP. Check him out on Diginomica. And more importantly, catch his rants and ravings on Twitter and, of course, his website, uh, Diginomica, one of the industry's leading enterprise blogs and news reporting, and even more than that, insights that you might not see anywhere else. All right. Thanks for being on the show, John. John, thank you so Always much. You trust it. Thank you. Thank you. Later. John should oh be an automatic uh, substitute for any time you and I are not able to make Disrupt TV. He's amazing. I know. Hey, one quick correction that we have to make. Uh, we've been pronouncing Professor Richard's name wrong. I, I really apologize. It's actually Devaney uh, for those out there. And so apologies to him. Who do we have on our show for episode number 128? Next week, we have Nick Simmons. He's an Olympian and he's also CEO of RunGum. So we're going to learn from an Olympian to an entrepreneur and what are some of the sports lessons that drive his business uh, ethos. We have Anne May Chang, author of Lean Impact, How to Innovate and Radically Greater Social Good. Uh, so we have a, a best-selling author. And we have, again, one of our favorites, First Ballot Hall of Fame, Disrupt TV inductee, Heather Clancy, editorial director of Green Biz Group. So it's going to be an amazing show next week. Olympian, best-selling author, and one of the top journalists in the world. So that's next week. <laughs> Just a regular show on Just Disrupt TV. Show. <laughs> it's awesome. Well, hey, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Keep December 10th down. It is going to be an awesome event talking about human rights in a digital age, the future of the internet with Tim Berners-Lee, Vince Cerf, and a number of internet pioneers all gathered in one place celebrating what's next for the future of the internet. So Ooh. we'll be putting on that show. Check it out on the Constellation website. Bala, any last words on your end? Ray, I uh, look forward to next Friday. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Mm -hmm.